Let me start by showing you a collection of symbols. It's a trivia for you. I want you to pick the odd one out from that picture. Pick the odd one out. Well, you're smart enough to figure, figure that out, and there you will see a set of religious symbols. You see Om, which represents Hinduism, and you see a crescent that represents uh, Islam, and you have that wheel out there is called Dharma Chakra, which represents Buddhism, and then Star of David, all of you know, and the other is a symbol of Taoism, uh, the yin and yang representation. And right in the middle is a noose. <laughs> that doesn't fit with that, with that matrix of pictures, right? Now, let me show you another picture. Let's show the next picture. Now, does this make sense? All of them fall into place, right? Now, the funny thing is that nothing really changed. It's the same thing. It's just that you had a visceral reaction to a news. You had a jolt. Oh, you know, that's not what you want to see on a Sunday morning, especially right in the middle of a divine sacred symbols, right? Now, but the reality is that a first century viewer would have had the same visceral reaction to this picture, the cross, the same way you had today because it didn't fit in. The cross was the tool of the ultimate torture. It was a symbol of torture. People would revolt, revolt, right? Like there would be a revulsion when you see that picture. Yet, yet, that became the symbol of the largest religion in the world today. Isn't it such an irony that God wanted to bring salvation by the torture and the brutal murder of an innocent man. Why can't he just say, you are forgiven, you are saved? Why this bloody spectacle? Why this cosmic drama? Would you stand with me for the reading of the word? First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You know, when I grew up as a little boy in India, I was a member of a church called St. Mary's Eastern Orthodox Church much like the Greek Orthodox or the Russian Orthodox or the Armenian Orthodox Church you see here. And that was my original upbringing, St. Mary's Orthodox Church. And the school I went is called St. Mary's High School. The bakery we went to buy snacks was called St. Mary's Bakery. 
Everything in that town revolved around the around Saint Mary. And my parents taught me how to pray a Hail Mary before they taught us to pray our Father in heaven. Because we were taught, rightly so, that no one can approach God directly. There needs to be a mediator. There is a big chasm between God and humanity. God on this side and humanity on the other side and there is Grand Canyon right in the middle. There is a chasm that cannot be bridged, that cannot be brought together. So on one side we call out to God, but God cannot hear us because of this chasm. And on the other side, God wants to help us, but God cannot help us because of this chasm. So there needs to be a mediator who, who is standing in the middle. Well, the problem was that they thought it was Mary or there are millions of other mediators as you see in the Orthodox and the Catholic circle. But I remember I was, I was speaking to the first evangelical pastor. He was not even a pastor I ever met. This is the first verse in the Bible I, I was read by. This gentleman read this particular verse. We always had a Bible in our house, but we are not allowed to read it. We always revered that. It put on a pedestal before we, go to church, before we go to exams in the schools and we go and say a Hail Mary in front of the Bible. And my mom literally thought Mary wrote the Bible too. Saint Mary wrote the Bible too. So this, this is the concept, right? The religion has taught us anyway. But this evangelical person, he brought the Bible and he said, let me read you a verse from the Bible. And then he read this verse. This is the first Bible verse I ever heard from anyone. So he read this verse. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, and the man Christ Jesus who gave as a ransom for all. And I thought that was just perfectly clear, that there is God there, there is man there, and right in the middle is the mediator, and he is our advocate, he is the bridge. Now, why should we need other mediators to go to the mediator which we already have? It's like you have a lawyer, but to deal with your lawyer, you need another lawyer. I mean, there are some lawyers, that nasty lawyers sometimes, right? He, your lawyer can mess up, but Jesus is not that. The point is that the Bible is very clear about the, the divide between God and humanity. And the mediator, the only, the one and the only mediator which is given to us, that is Jesus Christ. Now why? Now, so let, let's talk about the divide first. Now the divide, divide between God and humanity is what we call sin. Sin, right? It's not a favorite word. Not a lot of people use it. It has become a theological slur word. Even churches don't use it anymore. Even seminaries don't talk about that anymore. 
It could very well be that you could sit in a church for years and never heard the word sin because it is not politically correct to call people sinners. There was a famous Hindu religious philosopher, Swami Vivekananda, who said, it is a sin to call people sinners. And we have, even Christians have subscribed into that, 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 that philosophy that, oh no, don't talk about sin. That's some very old language. Now, I remember my world changed when I understood the definition of sin, because I always thought sin as something really bad and nasty, and I was very fortunate to be brought up in a family. Uh, we were very, uh, my dad, for example, when, you know, the way I was brought up, I never drank, I never smoked. Believe it or not, my dad will not even watch a movie. I don't remember as a family watching a movie, we thought of it is, it is it's not because we were religious, but we thought, you know, we, we, we created a certain kind of a moral class. That's the example my dad set for me. And I always lived that way. And I always thought sin is drinking, smoking, adultery, whatever the list you all have. So I'm not a sinner. I'm, I'm a good guy. And I was first in my class. And I was every, I mean, I was just, just a nice guy back in the days. Right? And uh, so I always thought God is, you know, God and I are like, you know, God is like my older brother, like, you know, just we are kind of in the same level as long as I don't mess with them, you know, like, you know, this, this concept, sometimes people in the church have that concept. You don't, you don't really let it out, but, but sometimes this, this underlying assumption that we're kind of okay, especially compared to people outside, right? Now, that was, the, that was my understanding because I'm not a sinner. I'm not doing any of this thing in the list. But that's when this gentleman actually taught me the real definition of sin according to the Bible. Now, it comes from a Greek word called hamartia. Hamartia. I have mentioned this at some other point in the church. So this is the word, and the picture represents, doesn't represent target. <laughs> so it actually is an, it is an archery term. It's a term that comes from archery where uh, when an arrow misses the bull's eye, then that arrow has committed hamartia. Hamartia really means missing the target. That's all it means. It could be on the sideline, it could be even outside, but unless and until it hits the bull's eye, that arrow has committed hamartia. It missed the target. Now that word itself comes from Greek tragedy. It's a, it's a, it, it comes from the world of arts originally. That word was first used by the Greek philosopher Aristotle and you all know Aristotle and his book, Poetics. Poetics, he used the word hamartia. Hamartia is a misjudgment or an error in judgment or error in action committed by a protagonist in the story that create cumulative uh, results or consequences to the extent that it, it becomes a disaster at the end. The plot reverses. A, a, an error committed by the by the, by the protagonist. It doesn't mean that it's a bad thing, but it goes out of the, out of the real, real plot where it should be going. So that's where the word hamartia 
comes from. Now, this is also uh, uh, the great bohemian uh, novelist Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka, you all know, he said something very similar. Evil is whatever distracts. That's what he said, a very intelligent way of saying it. Whatever is distracting you from your main purpose is evil. That's what hamadia, that's when you miss the target. It could be a good thing. Most of the time, it is good things that distract you from the real thing you're supposed to do. Have you ever noticed that? That's why there are good sinners and bad sinners, right? Bad sinners are those who are drinking and smoking and whatever, you know, you wanted to put all of them, you know, whatever is in your list. But there are good sinners who could come to church, who could get baptized, who could be even pastors. But then they are missing the target. What God has, see, a good example would be, imagine a doctor who has a family business practice as generations they have been doctors. His father was a doctor, grandfather was a daughter, doctor. <laughs> and then they have a son and, uh, and the doctor sends his son to USC medical school to become a doctor so that he can come back and take care of the family business, right? They have a doctor's clinic. And the son comes here at USC, he doesn't really like medicine a lot, so he sees Caltech. That looks great, so he goes to Caltech. And he learns all the, you know, he becomes a big name and he wins a, wins a uh, I don't know, a Nobel Prize in theoretical physics and he goes to JPL and like most other people here do and, and create the next Mars landing mission and he becomes this superstar scientist in the world. That was a good for him. And he spends all his money on charity, philanthropy, wonderful man. But from his father's perspective, he has committed hamatia because the very purpose of that story, the protagonist in that story, as a protagonist in that story, his purpose was to come here and be a doctor, go back and run that family clinic and serve the poor and the needy or his clients. That was the purpose. Yes, he did something better if, <laughs> from where we stand, for Pasadena standard, he did better, but he still did hamatia. He missed the target. Now, I remember realizing that fact, and I cried out. And that's the first thing I remember, crying without doing anything, you know, without physically being harmed. I literally was shocked to realize that I am the worst sinner of all at that very moment. See, there is a difference between sin with a capital S and sins with a small s. And we, especially in the Christian circle, are so obsessed with the sin, with the small s, sins, the list we all carry, right? Whether in the Bible or outside the Bible, we are so focused on that list of sins. But the Bible talk about the sin with a capital S, hamartia. Now all the small s sins are the product of that one capital S sin, the sin which is missing the target, missing what has God has destined for you. So what does God want from us? 
What does God want from us? What is this mystery? To me, it is the simplest question. And you know, I have two daughters and one of them are here today. Um, what do I want from my daughters? I always wonder. Yes, I want them to study well, which they did. I want them to get good jobs, in which they did, and they are in their trajectory. And as I want them to become nice people, very kind to everybody, and I believe they are. And I want them to be good philanthropists, and we always teach them to give, give, it's important, and I'm so glad to have that conversation. So, but, but is that all I want? But at the end of the day, what if they became the superstars, big movie stars, or big scientists, or whatever that is, made a lot of money, and do a lot of philanthropy, and they go and volunteer for, I don't know, doctors with our borders, or they become pastors, and all these amazing things which I even didn't conceive. But, but at the end of the day, what if they are ashamed of calling me their dad? It could happen to many people. Oh, you know, I, you know, I don't want them to, not that my daughters would ever do that, but you know, sometimes you feel, you know, my dad, his accent kind of sucks. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't want to introduce them to, no, they never did that. I'm just making up stuff, right? Uh, you know, what if I don't want to introduce him to this elite circle? You know, I'm with like a big superstar. So I don't want to say that my dad is a pastor. It's not that cool, you know? So, so, so what if, so at the end of the day, what does that mean? See, ultimately, you know, as parents, most of you are parents, ultimately, what we want, what I want is they should be my daughters and I should be their dad. That's the ultimate. All other things are bonus. All other things are extra that come with us, right? So, so that's all God wants. God doesn't want us to do anything magical. He can do all of that. All wants God craves for is a relationship. And we, he wants us to acknowledge him as our father. And he wants to be known as our, as our father. And we want our identity, be our primary identity to be, to be his children. And we should want only, only him. That's why Jeremy started this, this, this service with, that, with, with that, the sermon with that song. I thought that in somehow encapsulate the whole thing about the worship the Lord wants us today to do was just be on that song for an hour and a half. Not the most eloquent, eloquent sermon. It is, it is being with our dad that presence. Without doing that, we could do all of these things. But if you don't acknowledge God as your father, if you don't enter into that relationship, if you don't maintain and nurture and cherish that relationship, I'm sorry to say that we are all sinners just like any other drug addict out in the street, just like any other, uh, any other adulterer in the street. We are, we are committing hamartia. That's why the scripture said, all have sinned, all <laughs> Christians and non-Christians, evangelicals, orthodox, all of them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all caught 
in this trap, in the middle chasm, the separation between God and man. So the, uh, Romans 6.23 also says that wages of sin is death. Very important word. Wages of sin is death. What does that mean? What, what is death anyway? You know, we always think of death as a, as a cessation of existence. We always think, well, when a person is dead, that person is gone. That's why it's, uh, it's tragic. But death is not a cessation of existence. It's a transition from one reality to other. But it's this person is separated from us. That's why we are grieving, right? So when we say wages of sin is death, that really means that because of hamartia, there is this widened gap this great divide between God and us, that is what death means. Now, somebody needs to bridge that gap. Now, religions came around and prescribed many, many methodologies to bridge this gap, the death, the separation between God and man. The Jewish people said, you should follow halacha, which is the Jewish law which includes Torah to all other prescriptions in the law. That is the Jewish law. Muslims said you should follow Sharia. Come straight from Quran and the Hadiths and put together. You follow that, then you can somehow try to bridge the gap. Then the Hindus came and said, we will follow different marga, karma marga. You know, there are a lot of different margas, jnana marga, bhakti marga. There are different margas. Marga really means a path. Path gave us different path. Buddhists came and they gave us lotus sutra to different sutras. Sutras means techniques. So all religions came us and gave these prescriptions of how to bridge this gap, all humanity's vain attempt to reach God. But the irony is that that's why religions became a tiresome chore. People hate religion, no wonder, because it's a prescription. Nobody loves to read a prescription. <laughs> you want to read a story, right? Like, you know what I mean? So, so that's why religions failed to fill this gap because, because what we need, human effort cannot bridge this gap. The only, only person who can be in the middle, only person who can bridge the gap, only person who can mediator cannot be man. It has to be God because only God can bridge this widen this big gap. But on the other side, he cannot be God. He has to be a man because only a man can go right into the ditch in this muck, in this miry clay. God cannot go there because it is holy. God is holy. God cannot go in the, in the ditch. So it cannot be a man, it has to be a God. It cannot be a God, it has to be a man. Here comes the paradox. Here comes the predicament no religions can solve. Then comes a man who is, as we, lost, as we saw last week, 100% God, 100% man. The mystery of incarnation that takes Christianity apart from all other religions. Although he existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. A ton of weight on that word. God emptied K 
kenosis, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being in the likeness of a man, humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I'm going to explain this because I already talked about this last week. Always remember that God was not sending somebody else on a suicide mission. That's what people think because God sent his son. No, God was not sending his son. It's a theological metaphor. God emptied himself. That's the theology. The other one is a metaphor. God himself came down. God was not sending a third party. That's why you had to listen to the sermon on Trinity. That's why you had to listen to the sermon of Jesus, God, and man. You have to. This is a theological paradox. God was not sending a contractor here to save us. He emptied himself in the person of Christ and came as a savior because what we need is not another teacher. What we need is not another prophet. What we need is not another philosopher. What we need is a savior. Somebody who can go down and bring us and build this bridge. Now then again, why can't Jesus come and build that bridge and go? Why, why should he die? And again, you know, why, why should he die, <laughs> right? Okay, let me try to explain this as simple as possible. See, God cannot contradict his own nature. God cannot contradict his own nature. That's a, an impossibility for God. For example, I can be very loving. You know, I'm a very loving person if you get to know me. But sometimes I can be very unloving too. If you come against me, if you are kind of, if you, if you press the wrong button, I can be, I can un, unlove you just like, the, like an unfriend somebody on Facebook. It's just a click of a button. Because I can go against my own nature because I'm, I am, I'm, I'm loving, but I'm not love. But God is not just loving. That's not what the Bible says. God, the Bible doesn't say God is loving. The Bible says God is love. By the way, that is only in the Bible. Many people just write it in, you know, like the little stickers and the, we think it's some kind of cliche in all religions. Only religion which states that phrase, God is love, is the Bible. Because it's a very difficult sentiment. No other religion can grapple that. Because the moment you say God is love, here is the paradox. Here is, what, here is the challenge that comes. So God is love and God is loving. So that's his one nature. He's a loving father. He loves us. But here is another problem with this nature. God is also a just judge. God is also a just judge. I am also a just judge. <laughs> I am generally, you know, I, many people don't think that I, I don't talk about justice a lot. So many people think that I have some aversion. I'm a very reasonable person. I treat everybody justly. But sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I have some favorite people. 
come with some favorite projects, I might go a little unjust because I can contradict my own nature, but God cannot. God cannot show favoritism because he is my son, because she is my daughter. God cannot show the favoritism because God is kind of stuck in the rules he has created for himself because God cannot contradict. God cannot self-contradict. So here are these two natures in him. God as a loving father on one side and God as a just judge on this side Now, they are mutually exclusive when sin presents. If there is no sin, then there is okay. He can be just judge and he can be a loving father. But the moment sin enters, he cannot be, he has to choose. Either he can be a just judge or he can be a loving father. He cannot become both at the same time. It is like I am a judge and and a, a judge is sitting on his Uh, on his seat, judgment seat, then a culprit is brought forward and the judge looks at that person, he has committed a crime, he received, he deserves death penalty. So the judge looks at the, at the culprit and say, okay, he deserves death. That is just judge. Then at the second look, the judge realizes that, oh my goodness, that's not any culprit, that's my son, that's my child. Now, judge has a predicament. I want to let him go. That's my child. I'm not just a just judge. I am also a loving father. I can't send my son to die. Now, this is what we call a divine dilemma. It is the pathos of God. It is the inner conflict of God. God is presented with the same predicament of humanity right in front of him as he is building the bridge. On one side, he wants to embrace, he, he, he wants to love humanity, but on the other side, he has to, he has to punish humanity because he is just and he is also love at the same time. This is the self-contradictory nature. So there is this inner conflict in the heart of God. There is this divine pathos, divine dilemma that no religions could solve. Then in Christianity, the unthinkable happens. The unthinkable happens in Christianity, only in Christianity. The judge gets down from his seat, comes down and says that I'm going to bail this man out. I'm going to bail him. And I'm going to receive this punishment in my own self. That's the, that's the word ransom. Ransom is, a, is another word, we, you know, the older word for, for bailing out a criminal. Uh, the person who is bailing takes on the punishment. This is what we call a substitutionary death of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says, God made him, which is Christ, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who did not have sin come da came down to bail us out and he became sin. First Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is what we call the substitutionary atonement that Jesus did on the cross. The cross was inevitable. And I'll show you a picture. I want you to take that picture, and it's a balance. I want you to take that. I want that to be imprinted in your heart. That's what happened on the cross. On the one side, the law of God has to be satisfied. On the other side, the love of God has to be fulfilled. There is no other way logically possible to balance these things except for the cross. So the punishment was delivered and also the salvation was provided. The law of God meets the love of God on the cross of Christ. Justice and mercy meets in the cross of cross. Cross of God is a theological inevitability. There is no other way to build this bridge. There is no other way to bring, bring salvation to us. So when we say Jesus died for us, you know, it has become a cliche. We use this often and often against one thing that really makes me upset is even church leaders often, even pastors often say that word because we have been saying that often enough to say that, oh, Jesus died for us. It is almost like, like MLK died for black liberation. Gandhi, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi died for the independence of India. That's how Jesus died for us. No, this is very, very different. Jesus was not a martyr. Jesus was not on a suicide mission. Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a cosmic sacrifice. His sacrifice happened in the cosmic level, even in the Garden of Eden. The moment the humanity was kicked out, the first prophecy was given right there. The son of a woman will crush the head of a serpent. See, the, 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 the cross of Christ was orchestrated. The cross of Christ was choreographed even before eternity began. It is not like MLK died or Gandhi died, which is all amazing, but we have to understand that Jesus died for our sake. And what we saw on the cross 2,000 years ago was, was a historical manifestation of something that was preordained from time immemorial. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, but to give his life as a ransom. This really means I came to bail you guys out. That's my purpose. The very purpose of my birth was death. I'm here just to die for you because that's the only way salvation is possible. See, in the humanity of Christ, God experienced death so that in the divinity of Christ, we can experience life. I'll say that one more time. In the humanity of Jesus, God experienced death, so that in the divinity of Christ, we can experience 
life, eternal life. Now that is the mystery of salvation. That's the beauty of salvation. Now Christianity comes and says, don't worry about it. Everything is done. You don't have to do anything for your salvation. You don't have to walk around with a checklist. That's not the word salvation comes. And that famous verse in Romans 10, it says that if you confess, if you confess Jesus as your Lord, that's all you need to do. You don't have to do anything. If you confess Jesus as your Lord and you believe in your heart that he was risen from the dead, then you are saved. Everything else is religion. Don't fall into the trap of religion. Would you confess Jesus as the Lord? Now that's a loaded question. We have been thinking about it. Many people in the membership class, we ask this question, do you believe in Jesus? And say, yeah, of course I believe in Jesus. Then we realize that the Bible is not asking whether you believe in Jesus. The Bible is asking, do you confess Jesus as your Lord? Now that's a very different question. If you confess Jesus as your Lord, man, your life is going to have a radical U-turn. It's going to change. You won't be coming here sitting and smiling. It's a terrifying thing to accept Jesus, to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if you haven't already done that, here is your chance. Here is an opportunity. Yeah, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you are, you've been in this game for a long time. Some of you are not really saved. I'm going to tell it straight up to you. Many people in the church views, I'm not talking about this church, are not really saved. They are good people. But God cannot differentiate between good sinners and bad sinners. We have all committed hamartia, and we need to confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I'm not here to do a Billy Graham spectacle asking you to raise your hand, and I know that's what you expect. But I want you to do that in your heart. I want you to really rededicate your life. I want you to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because one day, you are going to look at that picture of that cross and balance. You are going to see that. And God will ask you, what did you do? I emptied myself and came to this world to bridge that gap. And what did you do? Oh, I went to church. I sang. I listened to Pastor Matthew's sermons, took notes. No, this is a terrifying thing. God emptied himself, bridging that gap. Here we are on the cross, the divine dilemma being satisfied. Would you, I'm giving you a couple seconds here. I'm going to say a prayer after. Would you look at the cross? I want you to look at the cross like you have never done before. I want you to see that balance, the law of God on one side and the love of God on the other side. The just judge on one side and the loving father on the other side. The justice on one side and the mercy on the other side. The theological predicament, the pathos of God, the divine dilemma being satisfied when Jesus said, it is done. It is finished. It is accomplished. All you need to do is to confess that he did that for you. Lord, 
We are coming back to the foot of the cross again. The spectacle that happened 2,000 years ago, the world makes fun of it. And as Christians, we are bewildered by it. We believe it, but here we are to confess it. Here we are to confess you as our Lord and Savior. Would you come inside our hearts and change the way we see the world? We don't want an upgrade of our behavior. We don't want to be better Christians than just better husbands and better dads. And No, no. We are asking for a complete overall, a complete remodeling, a complete radical change of our disposition. So that's why we are confessing. As Lake Avenue Church, we rededicate ourselves to carry this message of the cross, not just to Pasadena, not just to California, not just to America, but all over the world. We preach Christ crucified. In Jesus' name, amen.